stirring in this generation, and, and we should be just pouring our hearts into them. So, um, man, last week I did Quest. It was a lot of fun. Um, there's some always challenges, but it was more fun than challenging, I'll tell you that. And uh, tonight I'll be doing high school. I just want you to know from my heart, like, that I believe in this generation that's coming up, and I believe that it's, this generation is worth investing in. Because a lot of us are too old to get the energy to be a revolutionary. Can anyone agree? <laughs> You're like, man, I want to just be a revolutionary. But man, after about 10 minutes, I just need to sit down for a second because I'm tired. But this next generation, they are full of life and full of the Holy Spirit and full of what God is doing. I'm excited to see what God is doing in our youth. Pastor Eric texted me uh, last night. And I kind of asked him the remnant and what time it starts, and he just said, good luck getting them to leave. So apparently, uh, you know, our, our youth have been just seeking the Lord and, and not wanting to go home. That's a good place. When you are in the house of the Lord and you don't want to leave, you know God's up to something. Amen? Well, before we get into the word this morning, we're going to call up Andrew and Brenda. Are you guys in here? There we are. Come on up. Let's come on up over here. Hey, Kevin, can I have that microphone back? I don't know where you went. There you are. Uh, okay, so last week, uh, we, we Mary's last week, she moved away from us. Thank you, Bethany. Come up here, and we'll pray over you guys. And the Londines are leaving, so we are placing a moratorium on leaving the church. <laughs> right? It's too hard on the heart. So uh, Andrew and Brenda are moving to Florida, and, uh, and um, you know, I'm a little envious on days like today. So uh, we just, we love you guys, and uh, we are just so grateful that, to have been family with you for so many years, and uh, we're going to miss you a lot. And we just thank you for pouring your heart into the church. Uh, they've been running our care ministry for the past number of years, uh, so if you've ever been blessed when you've been going through a hard time that someone showed up at your door with a hot meal, uh, they probably coordinated that. And um, they're just, they have a heart for the church and a heart for the Lord. And so I know Andrew wanted to share something. Um, I'm going to give you guys the mic. And, uh, but I remember, I still have a sermon to preach after this. All right. Uh, you have anything to say? <laughs> She's kind of shy, you know. Um, I do have a couple things I want to say, and I shaved it down to about an hour. So... <laughs> That takes you out. So, um, about 10 years ago, uh, actually, it'd be 12 years in September that we moved up here to Ording, and uh, I do want to say that I I believe that that God doesn't want us to live looking in the rearview mirror. We may see a wreck on the highway and go, "Oh, that was a bad one," and we don't pull over and stare at it. We keep moving. We keep moving on. You get what I'm saying? So we. Our history is actually God's history. It's his story. Um, having said that, the place we came from wasn't very fun. It wasn't a good place. Um, we came here, and we encountered somebody. We met somebody at the Puyallup Fair. Um, I don't think he's here today. Jim Burbridge. You might want to tease him after, you know, next week. Uh, he's the one that kind of pointed us to ALCC. Um, he said, come and try it. Come and give it a shot. And we did. 
Um, this has been our valley of blessing. God brought us here to teach us some lessons, help us to cut off some things that we were believing for a while. And it's been a blessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling a Carlson. <laughs> so when we when we go through tough things, sometimes we become available, or God makes us available to help other people. They may not be in the same boat, but they're going through a tough, right? We use what we've learned to help other people out. We don't look in that rear view mirror anymore. And we just keep pressing on. That's what the word says. Keep pressing on. Um, and we're pressing on in another state. Um, so I'd appreciate your prayers for our, our trip. And for those that, um, that may be here that need um, a boost, they just haven't come to that realization yet. I just, I love your heart, Andrew. If you guys know this couple at all, you know that they serve. They just, they, that's what they do. They serve. I think they've had people at their house doing laundry for a long time. Like, they'll, they'll lend you their washing machine for crying out loud. They'll just be there for everything. Oh, it's sold now. Okay. Not anymore. <laughs> um, I remember doing Bible study at your house, Brenda, and you're just such a hostess, and it's just been an amazing journey to watch you guys. And Andrew, you have um, such a soft heart of service. I've seen him serve the church just endlessly. I've seen him serve his neighbor. One day he showed up at our house and he had built with his hands the most giant teeter-totter I've ever seen in my life that Brad and I can go on. And it's still in the backyard. He did that just for our family, just because. And every time I look out there and see it, I just think, Andrew, like, who does that? You know, but that's just who these people are. And we have, I loved, I thought it was really interesting how you said this has been your valley of blessing. Because honestly, you don't usually put those two words together. But I love that because that's what we're called to be, church, is in this valley of ordering a light. And I'm just grateful that we could be that for you, that everyone here could be that for you. And so we love you. We're going to miss you. Um, thank goodness for social media, because I'm sure we'll still know all about your lives because of that. And we'll miss you guys. Yeah. Awesome. That teeter-totter is worth about 1500 bucks right now. <laughs> yeah. If you've purchased wood recently, you know what I'm talking about. All right, let's pray. You just stretch your hands out. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for Andrew and Brenda and for the family. Lord, this season where they've come here and raised their kids here and um, are raising another one, Lord, just thank you for their heart for your kingdom and their heart for your ways. Lord God, I thank you for all the ways that they have invested in abundant life, Lord, the ways that have been unseen. Lord, these two servants, Lord, have mostly uh, just desired to be unseen and just to serve your body, Lord. And I just pray that you would just heap blessing upon them, Lord God, 
as they go. Lord, as they go, I pray as they travel, Lord God, that you would be, uh, keep a watch over them. Lord God, I pl- pray for provision for their life in every way. Lord, I thank you for new jobs and new adventures, Lord God, and I pray that there would be so much joy in that, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this new mission field that you have sent them on, Lord God. I, Lord, they have got some blessed neighbors coming up, Lord, where they're going to live, Lord, and I just pray that they would be a people who would influence their community, influence their schools, Lord God. I pray that you would give them opportunities Lord God, through their lives to share about all that you have done in them and through them, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord God, that you lent them to us for a season. Lord God, we will miss them dearly. But Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that we got to experience time and life with this family. Lord, we bless them and we send them out. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Everybody okay? All right, you gonna make it? God turned the lights down a little bit this morning in here. It's someone asked me about the tent and the lighting and all that. I said it's just whatever God has for that day is what it is. So that's just how it works. Well, I just have a question for you as we uh, we get into the word. Does anybody like things when they're nice and orderly? Right. If you could, would you vacuum out here in this tent, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Not possible. But just that there's something about that feeling of like when everybody does their own job and you don't have to do it for them. Has that ever happened in your life? No? <laughs> and all the moms said, preach it. It's just awesome. Like there's just such a feeling of satisfaction when you give someone instructions and then they follow through, like all the way. Like it's just, mm, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And there's just something that I love just about order. Does anyone love order? I mean, chaos is great sometimes, and it can be fun and adventurous. Like you don't want to out-order yourself and then just be a boring person, but there's something that brings peace when just everything is just like, okay, it's all, everything's in order. It's where it should be. I want to talk to you about an ordered life because I believe that God has called us to an ordered life. And Peter is teaching us in this series that we're in. This series is called Born Again. We're studying the book of 1 Peter. And he's teaching us what it means to live a born again life. And today we're going to see that what he teaches us is that a born again life is an ordered life. And we'll dig into what that means. And we'll also dig into what that doesn't mean. Now we're going to cover a huge portion of text today. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Eric taught, and he left off with, a, with verse 12, and I'm going to pick right back up on verse, same verse he left off on. And he had mentioned, he was talking about a little bit at the end there about our conduct and how the world views us and sees us and why that matters. And we're going to dig into that concept a bit deeper Today And this is really a two-part message because we're going to talk about our conduct. And then next week we'll, we'll get into really what God has called us to do with our words and how he's called us to speak of the things of God. And so we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, verse 12, all the way through 
1 Peter 3, verse 7. And no, I'm not going to read that entire passage of Scripture. So you can read that entire passage of Scripture this week. I encourage you to do it as we go through this book. But what I want to look at is I want to kind of zoom out and look at a very specific set of instructions that Peter gives to the church. Because all of this can be summed up in one concept. And so let's read just some excerpts from this section. So let's start with 1 Peter 2, 12, and we'll go through 15. And it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Everybody say, conduct. Okay, that's an important word for us today. Now here we get the uh uh-ohs in Scripture. Here we go, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put silence to the ignorance of foolish people. Now we're going to skip down to verse 18. He expands on that, but let's go to verse 18. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. So be subject to your good bosses and be subject to your lousy ones. Then we go to verse three, chapter 3. Let's go verse uh, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right, that's it. You're gonna, you can read through all the way through verse 7 if you want. We're going to just dive into this section and these portions of Scripture. So here's what's happening. The early church found itself in some predicaments. So when I say early church, if they made it into this book, they're the early church, right? This was the beginning of Jesus had left, the Holy Spirit had come, the church was expanding and moving, and Peter's writing to the church, and they found themselves in some very tough situations because they had fully understood that they had been called out of this world and into the kingdom of God. Does anyone get that over your own life? that we are called to be citizens of heaven, not of this earth. And so they are all about the kingdom, and they were finding freedom in Jesus Christ. Has anyone else found freedom in Jesus Christ? Amen? We sang about this. But this freedom was producing internal conflict inside of them. Because even though they were free in Christ, even though they were citizens of heaven, every single day they'd run into these situations that weren't always godly and weren't always kingdom of heaven, they would run into people in their lives who didn't lead them the way that Jesus led them. And so he addresses three areas where this was most prevalent in their lives, and I'll call it three predicaments. They had three predicaments that we're going to look at, and the first one, the first predicament that they were dealing with was the institutions in their life. Here they are, a free people. They have been set free by Jesus. They serve God alone. He is their king. But here's what was happening in their lives. It's a, it was, there was the climate. At the time of this writing, the early Christians actually lived in a dual government system. They had two governments. The first was a monarchy. You had Rome. You had one person. The monarchy is one person with ultimate power. Can anyone say that's dangerous, right? One person with ultimate authority. So they had to follow all the rules and regulations of civil government. Now, Peter tells us the purpose of civil government is to make sure that justice happens to evil people, all right? And so they had to deal with this civil government. Now, 
they also lived under a theocracy. Now, a theocracy is a form of government in which religion is the ruling party. Religion is in charge. So it would be like the priests, the religious officials, they were in charge. And you've heard of the Pharisees and the the Sanhedrin. So this is a religious form of government in which priests rule in the name of God. In this context, it's God that we serve, but there was also theocracies around the world where there were false gods, and those false priests also ruled as well. So here you have two different authorities over you in government, civil government, religious government. Now, have you ever had two bosses before? Has anyone had two bosses, and they both tell you the way they want you to do your job, and they both tell you opposite things? How frustrating is that? Who are you supposed to listen to? Now, this boss says, this is what I want you to do, and so you start to do it, and the other boss comes up and says, what are you doing? I want you to do this, and now you're stuck between them and their relationship. Has that ever happened to anybody at all? Not exciting. This was what the early church was under. Very frustrating. So here's where they kind of arrived on. This is the best plan. Since this boss wants us to do this, and this boss wants us to do this, how about we listen to neither of them and just follow Jesus? And it was causing some issues in the early church. The second thing he addresses is masters or bosses or employers. Now, this time you still had slaves and you had servants. So you had slaves with no rights, servants with some rights. But now these slaves and servants, they're getting born again. And Paul writes that there was no longer Greek, nor Jew, nor slave, nor free, etc., etc., etc. And so this idea that spiritually there's no more slavery, spiritually there's no more servant, it's just you are in Christ. And so there's this idea that comes into the heart of someone who is, has no rights in life and has a boss who has to basically completely own them to say, you know what? you can't own me anymore because I belong to Jesus. So I don't have to do what you say. Hmm. So now you have physical slaves, spiritually free, and they were in a predicament. Who am I supposed to listen to? Do I listen to my boss or do I listen to my master, Jesus? And to further the problem, they had this mentality because they, remember they had no rights, they were a servant, But this thought started to spark up in them. Why should I listen to a heathen like you? I don't care if you're rich. I don't care if you have power. I don't care if you have authority. I don't care how smart you are. You don't even believe in God. Why should I listen to you? And this happened in these relationships. And then you have the third set that he addresses is marriages. Acts 17.4 tells us that when the early faith began to rise, when the church began to grow, it said quite a few prominent women joined the faith. That's Acts 17.4. And so you have many women who found themselves in a marriage where they didn't think the same as their husbands, where they had given their hearts and their lives to Jesus and their husbands had not, and now they were spiritually unequal and it caused friction in their homes and it was a challenge. And I know that there are wives here in this very tent and that are watching that experience the same thing and Peter's saying, we've got to figure out how to deal with this. Because you had a situation where wives were more spiritually mature than their husbands, and in lots of cases, husbands weren't saved. Saved. Peter marks here, it says, husbands who did not obey the word. He's talking about the word of God. So here you have these wives saying, you know what, I'm more spiritually mature, but I'm in a predicament now. Because how do I live in a marriage where the husband's supposed to be the head of the home, but Jesus is the head of my heart? 
How do I navigate that? How do I work this out? And so in all three situations, you have this, this predicament. You now are under kingdom authority, so what are you supposed to do with worldly authority? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What are you supposed to do with worldly authority? What are you supposed to do when you're under kingdom authority and you have worldly authority? Has anyone ever had this wrestling match in your life? Ever? Over the last 18 months? Ever happened to you? Peter, fortunately, says, I have, here's the response. And here's his response. Now, before you throw tomatoes at me and things like that, you got to listen all the way through. Okay? In all three situations, Peter's answer is be subject to. Be subject to every human institution. Be subject to your masters. Be subject to your husbands. Well, that doesn't sound fun. What am I supposed to do? Just fall in line and obey every order that they tell me? Now, I want to just keep in mind that he uses the same word three times. We're going to look at what this word is. But sometimes we say, well, you just got to do everything they say. I mean, that's what it says. Obey, you know, be subject to every human institution. You just got to do everything they say. Hmm. You, you, you still think that, wives? Is that how that works in your marriage? You just do everything your husband says? I mean, I don't think that's how God created marriage. I'm pretty sure that's not how God created marriage. Let's, let's take a look. This word to use subject is the Greek word hupotasso, and it means to order or arrange yourself under. To order or arrange yourself under. To live an orderly life under. And in many places in the New Testament, it's translated as the word submit. In fact, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, but lots of different translations, even right here in 1 Peter, don't use be subject. It says submit to. Is anyone reading a Bible right now that it says submit instead of be subject? Any of them? No? Is anyone reading a Bible? Oh, somebody in the back. Hallelujah. Okay. So this is the word submit. And it's a very important for us as Christians to know the difference between submission and subjection. They are not the same thing. And so the problem is with our English language is that he says be subject to, but in English... Subjection is not the same as submission. They are very different concepts. And so let's take a look at what these concepts are. Subjection is the act of bringing someone under domination or control. That's subjection. It is the act of a ruler to force obedience. He uses fear or force or intimidation to break the will of the people so they eventually surrender to him. They give up and wave the white flag. They've been conquered. They are now in subjection to this leader. That is what subjection is. And, I mean, if you look hard enough, you can find it in our culture today. No, you don't have to look very hard. It's out there, all right? To have the will of the people surrendered so that there can be a ruling authority and just do what they say. But submission is different. Submission is not at all like subjection. Submission is acknowledging, with our hearts, acknowledging authority and willingly arranging our lives in an orderly fashion under that authority. For example, there are speed limit signs. I know you don't all follow them, but they are there for a reason. And so you're driving along and you see the speed limit sign and you say, well, this is what has been deemed as the safe speed. 
Now, in some places, you wonder, how did you come up with that? Like, there are some places where there's traffic lights every 100 feet, and, there's, and it's 55, and there's other places where it's wide open spaces, and it's 20. I don't get it. But it's supposed to be a measure of how safe it is. Now, so you're supposed to willingly submit to that. Now, you probably never speed, ever. I do sometimes. However, if I was to get pulled over and issued a ticket, what am I going to do? I'm going to pay it. You know why? Because I have decided to arrange myself orderly under this institution. And if that's the rule, and I break the rule, and someone gives me a ticket, I'm not going to pitch a big fit about it because I was doing something wrong. I'm going to say, your, your speed limit doesn't matter. I follow Jesus. And they're like, did I say 200? I meant 400, you know? <laughs> you arrange yourself under. Here's what we got to know about submission. It's voluntary, and it is never forced. The most foolish husband in the world is the one who says, submit, woman. <laughs> I don't have a spare room, so I hope you have good friends. Submission is voluntary on the part of the person who is deciding to submit, Subjection is saying, you will do what I say. You will obey. It's a heart posture that responds to the divine order of things. Now, as a side note, as we raise our children, there is an important value, and there is times, have you found, kids, that there are times in parenting where it feels like subjection? <laughs> That's because it is, because part of parenting is teaching our kids that obedience matters. If we don't teach our children, if we just say, kids, it's just so hard to parent my kids. If we don't teach our children the importance of obedience, when they grow up, they won't have learned how to obey God. And so there is an important role in our life as parents that we need to help our kids learn obedience so that they can grow up and obey the Lord. But this is what submission is. Submission is a heart posture that responds to the divine order of things the way that God set it into motion. Paul teaches the same concept. So Paul and Peter, they didn't always get along perfectly, but they did agree on this. I'm just going to read you three quick scriptures. Romans 13:1, Paul writes, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. 1 Corinthians 7:21, he writes, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Just continue the way that you are. In Ephesians 5, 22, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So what these guys are telling us, what the Apostle Paul and Peter are telling us, is that this is how born-again people are supposed to live. This is how we are to order our lives, to keep an ordered life. Now, let's just pause and time out for a second and acknowledge the elephant in the room. It's not always possible to submit in every situation. It's not always possible. Now remember, submission is a heart posture, not something forced on you. But there are times where you don't always submit. There are also times when you don't want to, but you're still called to. You see, we are called to submit whenever possible, not just whenever desirable. Whenever possible, not whenever desirable. There will be times in your life where you have to choose to arrange yourself under an authority that God has placed in your life, even though it's uncomfortable. And if you read through 
the scriptures here in 1 Peter 2 and 3, you will see that they were often in uncomfortable situations. But Peter said, I still want you to submit. Now, it's not always desirable, but it isn't always possible either. And we have to have wisdom as Christians. I'll give you three examples. You don't submit to governance when it tells you to live contrary to Scripture. Can I get an amen? You don't submit to bosses when they expect you to do something unethical. Can I get an amen? You don't submit to husbands when, they, when he wants you to participate in immorality. Can I get an amen? Okay, there are times in our lives where we have to use wisdom to know, like, God, is this, do I not want to submit just because it's not desirable? Or, God, am, do I need to stand up and live for you despite what I'm being told I have to do? Like, these are a, a place that you have to wrestle with as a Christian. And, I, and, and here's the thing. We are called to unity in the church, but we also have to know that we each have our own wrestling match in this area of our life. And that might look a little different for different people. But I'll give you an example out of Scripture that we can look at and go to every time. Acts four eighteen through 20. It says, Then they, this was the government, they called them again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. So they were being told, This is an order. Don't do this. And they said, We have to. We have to. We have to. This is how we live our life for the Lord. We have to. It happens again in Acts 5, 29. It says, Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Now, this is an interesting verse because Peter and John, they were in jail and they literally broke out of jail. An angel helped them. But they broke out of jail. They were put in jail because they were preaching the gospel and they were put in jail and the angel of the Lord helped deliver them and that next morning they went out to the streets and they kept preaching they kept doing exactly what got them arrested that doesn't sound very submissive to me does that sound submissive to you it doesn't sound submissive to God we've got to be wise because although we are called to submit we are also called to not compromise our faith and as Christians, we have to know where that line is. We have to begin to discern where are the places where I am being asked to compromise my Christian faith. Where am I being asked to compromise my faith in my marriage? Where am I being asked to compromise my, compromise my faith in my job? Where am I being asked to compromise my faith with my relationship with the government that God has placed over me? How do we work it all out? You've got to begin to go to the Lord and say, God, how do I do this? How do I walk this out? You've got to know how to do it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. <laughs> because really, it comes down to you going to the Lord and seeking him and saying, God, how do I walk this out? It means going to the Lord and seeking him and walking out what he's called you to do and not judging. God, how do I walk this out? Now, let, let's get back to this, this idea, because I kind of strayed off of the path here a little bit, talking about when we should not submit. We've got to get back to the main idea. He says, walk in submission. Now, he's telling us to walk in submission, not so we can just get in line and be good little girls and boys. That's not the purpose of submission whatsoever. It's not to make your government happy with you. It's not to make your husband happy with you. It's not to make your boss happy so that they can just have all their own happiness. There is actually a bigger purpose. 
the reason. Let's talk about this. This is the final part here, the reason. The reason is revealed, right, the very first verse I read. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We will all have a day of visitation. Either Jesus comes back and we're sitting here in this tent, or we go to be with him. But there will be a day where we stand before the Lord. And he says here that you want to keep your conduct honorable so that when these evildoers speak against you, they're going to see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's two reasons I think Peter's telling us that it's important that we walk an ordered life. We walk an ordered life. And I'm intentionally using that phrase, walk an ordered life. Because what I want to do is I want to strip away all of the stereotypes, all the preconceived notions about what submission or subjection and all that is. It is an ordered life, a life in which I say, I will order myself under the way that God has set up our world. And I will walk according to that way. The first reason is this, an ordered life demonstrates that we live for God. It demonstrates that we do things his way. What happens when you live an ordered life is that your Christian walk with God isn't just a status and isn't just a phrase. It isn't a label that you wear that says, yes, I'm a Christian. It's not a really cool t-shirt that says faith. It's not just the message, it's the lifestyle that you live. You've probably all met Christians that they say, I am a Christian, and then you watch their life and you say, I'm not so sure. Has anyone met someone like that? Like, hopefully that's not who they've met in us. But what he says is you've got to demonstrate that you live for God with your actions, that the world gets to see what we really do believe in. Our conduct should be demonstrating to the world that the Christian life is worth it. When you have a conduct, when you are living an ordered life, he says your conduct should show the world this is an appealing way to live your life. Let me ask you this question. Does our world need any peace right now, internally? Have you met any people who need peace? Okay, if they meet a Christian who also has zero peace in their life, and you say, you gotta believe in Jesus, it'll change your life, and they look at your life and they say, what? You're just as messed up as I am. I mean, that is the truth. We're all messed up, but there's something like we were singing about love has a name. Joy has a name. Is there hope within us? When we meet people in our life, do they see that, wow, I don't know. You, you always talk about this God you believe in, and I don't get it, but you carry yourself differently. And it's obvious that there is some type of benefit. This is a, listen, our world isn't always going to come to Jesus because they've just decided, I want to surrender. What kind of world do we live in? We live in a world that says, what's in it for me? And it begins, not, that's not the gospel, by the way, but it begins with the world seeing your life and saying, they've got something How are they always smiling? I don't understand. How are they always kind? How are they patient? I don't there's, I want something like that. And that is often the beginning of an invitation into a life with Jesus Christ. So it's a demonstration that we live our life for God. It's a demonstration that we are truly authentic, that we are who we say that we are. The second part of this is that an ordered life 
makes our Christian witness effective. That it makes us effective. Peter says that through our conduct, people will glorify God. I love that in verse 12. Through your conduct, they will glorify God. Do you know who glorifies God? People who are saved. Interesting, he says, keep your conduct, and he's, he's pointing to the world, among the world honorable so that they will glorify God. Keep your conduct honorable so that they will be saved, so that your Christian witness is effective. Your conduct will point people to Jesus. Has anyone ever watched lacrosse? Has anyone ever watched that game? That game is wild. It's kind of insane. Like, you carry a stick around, and you try to run down a field, while other people with sticks just, like, whack you with the stick as hard as possible. And you're somehow supposed to hold on to the ball to score a goal. All right? So here's this game. Now, something happens in a lacrosse game when your conduct is not honorable. Let's say, let's say you, does anyone play lacrosse? Raise your hand. Okay. You guys back. What happens if you slash someone with your stick? What happens? Penalty. How long is that penalty? Two minutes, minute, two minutes, depending on the severity, if it's technical or whatnot. There's different penalties. So what happens is you've got, uh, let's see, how many players are out there at a time? Someone tell me. Ten. So if you slash someone with your stick, now you can, it's, I don't understand it completely. Like you can hit someone with your stick legally and you can hit someone with your stick illegally. It looks all the same to me, but there's a method to it apparently. If you slash someone or you hit them in the back or you do something that you're not supposed to do, you get a penalty. And if it's a two minute penalty, that means that your team is now playing with nine players for those two minutes instead of 10. So you have a disadvantage. And what you see is that the person who sits out generally comes out of the, the defensive side, right? So now there's an, a scoring advantage for the other team. And what I have noticed is that when that team is a man down, the other team often scores a goal. It happens a lot. So they've got less players to defend. And it seems like, well, I've got less people on my team now because someone has a penalty, and now the other team scored on us. When you, when your conduct is not honorable, it has an adverse effect on your team. That penalty has an adverse effect on your team. Now, it may have been really fun to do in the moment. In fact, he might have had it coming. But the end result is, is that your team is now adversely affected. Anyone play lacrosse? If that's true, just give me a yes. Raise your hand right? Is that true? You're adversely affected when you end up on the sidelines. Now, let's step back and say that our life, our life and the evangelism through our life, our conduct through our life is like a field. And if our conduct isn't honorable, we get sidelined. Now, I'm not saying, oh, well, God puts you out, takes you out of the game. That's not what I'm saying. We take ourselves out. Because our conduct isn't honorable, and so we don't get to be on the field for a while. And what happens is that when we get sidelined, it has an adverse effect on the gospel. That when our conduct isn't honorable, our life has an adverse effect on the gospel. Now, I don't know anyone in here would say, oh, I want to have an adverse effect on the gospel. 
Now, we, when we tell someone about Jesus, we want them to actually go, yeah, this makes sense. I've seen your life. But when we don't live that ordered life, when our conduct isn't honorable, we have an adverse effect. Listen, you can't be effective in this life for Jesus if you're spending all your time in the penalty box. You can't. Because the world will put you on time out when they see that you're not authentic. They will put you on time out when they see that, well, you say this is what you believe, but you don't live what you believe. You say that this is how we ought to live, but you're worse than all of them. You can't be effective if your conduct has you on the sidelines. And Peter is writing to the church and he's saying, guys, I just want you to stay in the game. I want you in the game. Would you keep your conduct honorable? And sometimes that looks like you've got to submit even when it's not fun. And whether that's to your government or to your, your husband or to your master, your boss, you, you sometimes just, you, you've got to do it because I want to see a life of evangelism through you. And this is really the main point Peter's trying to drive home is that when you live an ordered life, you're living a life of evangelism through your conduct that we are called to live a life of evangelism through our conduct. Now, like I said, you've got to have discernment to know if there are situations that come up in your life where you have got to step back and say, I have to follow the Lord and not men. You have to do it because compromising your faith is also a destroyer of your Christian witness. But we've got to look at our lives and say, what's my attitude toward these things? What's my thought toward these things? How do I deal with this topic in my life? This is the one topic in this entire book that I was going through and planning out the sermon series. And, and here's how my sermon planning went, all right? Chapter two, we'll end at verse 12, and then we'll skip all that and we'll pick up at three, verse eight. And then God reminds me, hey, Brad, remember how you say all the time, don't skip the hard parts? And I'm like, mm. So what do we do with it? What do we do with it? I think the best place to start is to get honest and ask yourself this question. Is there conduct in my life that is having a negative effect on my Christian witness? Is there conduct that's having negative effect on my Christian witness? Can people tell that I'm a Christian by the way that I act? You know, I wonder. By the way that I post? By the way that I speak? By the way that I work? Like when you go to work, are you that one guy who's like, oh man, I have to work with him today. He never does anything. Can they see Jesus through my life? By the way that I treat my husband? By the way that I treat my wife? How do I? Wives, it says wives submit, but if you go to Ephesians, it says husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church. Hmm. I don't remember Jesus telling me, like, man, why do you always have to do that? Come on, why isn't dinner ready? Come on, it's your job to parent the kids. Jesus never said any of that to me, He laid His life down for me. Right? So this, this message when we say, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives submitting to your husbands isn't getting together with the girlfriend and saying, well, my husband is such a loser. I mean, 
you can't get anything right. That's not what that looks like. You know, my wife always says, I don't like those conversations because I just think, well, why'd you marry him? You're not very smart. <laughs> How do we speak about one another? How do we speak? How do we get to places where you're at work and everybody's talking about how terrible the boss is and in your heart you're going, man, my boss is terrible. I totally agree. Am I going to join in the trash talk or am I just going to work as I'm working unto the Lord and saying, you know what? This is who God has given me in my life right now. I'm going to start looking for a new job because I can't handle this anymore, but I'm not going to, with my mouth and with my conduct, begin to say the things that others are saying. We're called to live a life of evangelism through our conduct, through the way that we do things, the way that we live our lives. You've all heard the expression, if you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And that's really what Peter is saying to us today. To look and reflect in the areas of our life, what is our conduct? This last 18 months has exposed so many of these issues of our heart. And and I will, I will say, like, completely honestly, like, I have been angry with our civil authority over the last 18 months at times. It's my role, though, in my heart to decide, are there places that I need to submit because I'm called to, or are there places where I need to say, I can't submit to this? But either way, I choose, what am I saying about what am I saying about? Now, it, here's the thing. It's okay to say we need to elect someone new, but it's not okay to begin to say very unchristian things about the people that God has given us to lead. And we have to get it right, church. We have to get it right. We have to come to a place in which we can be vocal. Now listen, this is another whole message, but church, we have to begin standing up for what is true and right in our world. We have to. We have to. Man, if you read the respectful email I sent to a teacher this week because of what was being taught to my student that was absolutely unacceptable. We have to start standing up for some things. But we can do it in a way that looks like an ordered life. We can look... Have you ever been down to downtown Seattle to like a, a football game or a baseball game? Have you ever seen the signs in the loudspeaker talking about Jesus? Have you, heard the, have you ever heard that? Yeah. Is anyone here a born-again Christian? Has anyone been told by that person that you are going to hell? Keep your conduct honorable. Now, I'm not saying, I, I, I bet people have got saved that way. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to, I just see, like, that's not the way I'm going to lead people to Jesus. That's not the way that I'm going to speak about my husband or wife. That's not the way I'm going to speak about my boss. That's not the way I am going to speak about the civil government. I'll stand up for what's true, and I won't deviate from it. But we have to keep our conduct honorable. Because if we do, he says... There's going to be an opportunity in your life where people are going to ask you, why do you have hope and no one else does? And next week, we're going to look at that. He says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. If you don't live an ordered life, no one's ever going to ask you the question. 
So that's where we got to get to this week. To say, God, where are places in my heart, my conduct that I need to submit to you so that I can live a life of evangelism through my actions? That is the call of God upon our life. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for you this morning. Worship teams in a song. I want to, will you just close your eyes and let's pray? Will you, when, before we pray, will you just think for a moment and just ask the Lord, Lord, is there an area of my life where I'm not living in ordered life? Is there an area of my life where my conduct has not been honorable? Would you just think on that for a moment? Lord, we surrender these places to you, Lord God. We want to be an honorable people so that when people see our lives, that they too will glorify God. Lord, as we, we go out and we navigate this world that is so dark and is so challenging, Lord, I pray that you would show us how and when we need to just submit and walk in peace I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know when we have to do what Peter and John says, I have to listen to the Lord on this one. I pray that you would give us the guts and the courage to do that. Lord, as we walk out in this life, Lord God, I pray that you would just begin to show us where we need to come in line with your way. And we surrender that to you. Even right now, Lord God, we repent to you the places where our conduct couldn't possibly be leading anyone to Jesus. Show us, Lord God, how you would have us live. Show us your way. Show us the better way. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people of evangelists and that we would be evangelists without even having to say a word. Because people can see the faith on our life. They can see the courage on our life. They can see the hope on our life and the joy in our life. And they can see that this is a person who lives an ordered life. Let's give our lives to you, Lord God. And we ask that you would shine through us. Just make that your prayer today. If you desire that, would you just say, Jesus, shine through me today. Jesus, shine through me today. Yes, God, let my conduct be honorable first to you, Lord Jesus, that the world would see that there is hope that can be found. Thank you, Lord God. Let's sing this together.